0: Welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. This week, we're looking at social inequalities that are exacerbated by the climate crisis, with poor communities, and particularly communities of color, suffering the worst impacts. Research shows a direct connection between racist urban housing policies and extreme heat, And with temperatures continuing to rise, these disparities will increase. Our guest today is Vivek Shandis, a professor of geography at Portland State University. He co-authored a study that showed how formerly redlined neighborhoods are several degrees hotter on the hottest days of summer. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. go back to that study that you co-authored that showed a very direct link between racist housing policies, redlining, and the disproportionate heat that is being suffered in those communities. I know you looked at about 100 cities or so, and you found some very concrete evidence. So tell us exactly what you were looking at and what you discovered.
1: So our study was based on the um, premise that empirical evidence over decades have shown us that heat kills more people than any other natural hazard uh, in the United States uh, nationally. And that really kind of underpins a number of social and political um, factors that go back decades. And we spend a long time trying to understand why are we seeing a greater amount of poverty? Why are we seeing a greater number of communities of color in places that were the hottest part of an urban region or a city? And we were finding differences of temperature upwards of five, 10, 15, sometimes even 20 degrees Fahrenheit difference between one part of a city or one neighborhood and another neighborhood. And for a very long time, almost a decade, I was scratching my head wondering why that was. So this study was really born out of a question of this disparity that we're seeing in the exposure to extreme heat is so systematic and so consistent across the country. We wanted to ask the question, Why was that a pattern we were observing in our research? So we dug in a little bit deeper and we went into a question of redlining, um, which was a very convenient data set that had been published by the University of Richmond, where they had taken over 150 maps that had these four distinct colors on it, where the term redlining comes from. Uh, One is the color blue, um, and the other is the color green, both of which are areas that were supported with federally backed mortgage insurance. So mortgages, so someone defaulted on their loans in those neighborhoods, and they could get backed by the federal government to not go into default with those loans. And so that was a period of 1930s all the way up until 1968. These particular neighborhoods that were green and blue were given mortgage back um, mortgage uh, insurance. And then these other neighborhoods, which were yellow and red uh, outlined in those two colors actually had a, uh, didn't have any of those kinds of insurance policies. So we asked the question, maybe the fact that we had this intense codified um, um, process of policies that would segregate neighborhoods, maybe that would help us better understand why we're seeing certain areas greatly disinvested and as a result, seeing greater temperature increases in those neighborhoods and other areas with a lot of investment, literally and figuratively, a lot of investment going into those green and blue neighborhoods. And maybe that would help us distinguish why we were seeing these patterns. So as we dug into these digitized redlining maps that the University of Richmond uh, provided, and we downloaded a lot of satellite image of temperature of surfaces in each of these neighborhoods, we were finding that in the redline neighborhoods, temperatures were on average about five degrees uh, Celsius warmer than their non-redline counterparts. And so that really tells us that there's a uh, really large disparity in cities based on whether you lived in an area that was historically uh, segregated and, co- and and colored red by these uh, housing uh, developers and planners and consultants, or whether you lived in a blue or green neighborhood. Um, and so that disparity was really pronounced because we found it across 108 cities in the United States where redlining was operating. And not only that, we were able to even rank these cities in terms of the Proportion of difference between those redlined and greenlined counterparts, and that was really ranking out where the city that I'm based in, Portland, turned out to be the top of that list. Totally surprised me in many respects because I heard I had heard about redlining occurring in Chicago and Baltimore, and I'd heard of all these stories and narratives put together. Though Portland was number one on that list, then came Denver and Minneapolis, and then um, all the essentially 94% of the cities that we looked at consistently had this pattern where the redlined were hotter than the greenlined areas of the city. So, in a nutshell, that was an empirical, like an actual evidence based study that was able to link a federal housing policy from the 1930s and that was abolished in, the 19, in 1968 during the Fair Housing Act. And yet we see that long shadow of its impact as temperatures are continuing to rise across the planet and neighborhoods are at the epicenter of the experience of those acute temperatures that people are exposed to.
0: We have discussed a lot on Just Solutions, how systemic racism has infiltrated every aspect of society and particularly when it comes to issues like housing and how housing then is connected very much to intergenerational wealth or indeed poverty. And because entire communities and entire demographics were excluded from accessing housing, being able to buy these insured mortgages, their entire families and generations then have been excluded from accumulating wealth through housing and have been then essentially segregated for multi-generations into these areas. So if we bring that up to 2022, what are the characteristics of these neighborhoods in these cities that you looked at that are common across all of those neighborhoods that had been redlined that is leading to this extreme heat?
1: Yeah, it's the it's the next question in the work and we're uh, right now actually about to put out a couple of ad- additional follow-on papers that gets at this question. So let me give you the punchline ahead of those pub- papers being published is simply that when a neighborhood over a course of 30, 40, 50, 100 years gets disinvested in over time, meaning there is less money going into housing, there's communities that are ha- experiencing intergenerational poverty decade after decade, what we start seeing is that when large projects like highway projects of the 1950s or housing projects of the same era, public housing projects or big box stores of the 70s and 80s, when these land hungry developments are being sited in a city, they go to areas that are the least land rent values. So from an urban economics point of view, it would make a lot of sense to put large uh, developments like industrial or um, uh, manufacturing into areas that cost less, the land actually costs less. And when you disinvest in an area over decades, that land by design is Um, lower rent values and those developments then end up going into these neighborhoods, often adjacent to existing communities or sometimes even right on top of existing communities. And we end up seeing asphalt, concrete and the amount of these very dense materials that absorb the sun's radiation, hold on to it and amplify over time. re-radiating out and creating higher temperatures in these neighborhoods. So you think about a freeway project from the 1950s that uh, basically divided a neighborhood and created this enormous amount of asphalt and concrete that then absorbed that uh, sun's radiation and pushes it into these adjacent neighborhoods. So when these disinvested neighborhoods were getting divided through the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s and on, with freeways, we started seeing a very clear uh, signal from uh, temperature about temperatures about um, actually experience and exposure of higher temperatures uh, um, increasing in these neighborhoods. So that was really a pattern that pretty much prevailed all the way through the 1950s, and we're seeing it even today, where we're seeing you know whether a Walmart where a Walmart ends up or where one of these large kind of commercial developments end up. They often go to areas that have historically been disinvested and have been essentially forgotten by a lot of municipal planners and and other decision makers. And so communities are left kind of really in many ways isolated in these pockets of what we call urban heat islands where these temperatures are. We've actually been able to measure in some cases upwards of 20 degrees Fahrenheit and in some cases 25 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than their um, non redline counterparts in the same city at the same time.
0: It seems as well that these neighborhoods are marked by what are notable by what's missing as well. I mean, we often see euphemisms around wealthy areas like leafy leafy suburbs. When you read that, you know well that also indicates that there's wealth. So if there are tree canopy, you know that that is a more affluent area. It seems almost a given these days, and we know that in a lot of these urban areas there's a a lack of tree canopy and I know that that is very much related to heat but also acoustics as well that often having a tree canopy it adds not just to the beauty of the physical beauty of a space but there's so many other knock-on effects it helps with shade of course but also with the acoustics and so talk a little bit about that that maybe the absence of things like tree canopy is also
1: contributing. Right you know so I go back up Quite a ways on this on, on this topic of green space, um, in terms of even our evolutionary history as a species. Like we are a species that really emerged from the forest. And much of our health and much of our well-being is really tied very closely to green spaces, to trees, to canopied um, forests. And as we think about those forests slowly kind of being more surgically in, um, placed into neighborhoods. We're really talking about which neighborhoods were able to receive those trees and which neighborhoods didn't receive those trees. And if you have a, um, when, when you have a policy like redlining and segregation, creating these invested and disinvested spaces, these marginalized spaces, these um, highly lifted up spaces, we see that the materials that are used for the housing, we see that the available planting space for trees, we see that the green spaces, for parks and natural areas follow suit with that investment spectrum, and as a result, the areas that have very little planting space, because there's a freeway in pla- in, in in that place or a big box store with large parking lots, trees and green spaces and parks are squeezed out. And where do uh, those uh, large asphalt-hungry um, uh, developments um, not go? Often in the neighborhoods that have the large kind of uh, median strips, those areas between the sidewalk and the road, they tend to be larger in wealthier neighborhoods where you can plant large form trees, get lots of shade. And as a result, we see the health and well-being of communities in those areas with larger amounts of green space, whether in the form of Uh, trees in the yard, whether in the public spaces in front of their homes, or in larger amounts of parks in and around the neighborhood, we see the health uh, measures of communities living in larger in areas with more green space consistently better than in places where there's a lot less green space. And that not only translates on a day-to-day kind of chronic experience of exposure to heat and other environmental pollutants and, and, and what we call in the field environmental insults, where you're getting exposed to larger amounts of lead, particulate matter, um, uh, nitrogen oxides, and many other air pollutants in combination with that heat because you're right adjacent to a freeway, we're seeing that also play out intergenerationally through through research happening in fields like epigenetics. So we're really starting to unpack this very long-standing pattern of health-related impacts that emerge from these land use planning decisions that have been made decades ago.
0: Vivek Chandas is Professor of Geography at Portland State University. He co-authored a report that showed a direct link between extreme heat in urban areas and racist housing policies like redlining. You're listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. This has real life implications. It's a it's a life or death situation because, as you said at the top of the, the show, that heat kills so many people in this country. And uh, Portland, where you're speaking to us from, a couple of years ago, I know, had a very dire situation with extreme heat. We're at the tail end of the summer where so many parts of the country, and indeed so many parts of the world, suffered through extreme heat. So take us through exactly what this means then for these communities, and particularly if I would assume, and maybe you could clarify, these are also communities that have older infrastructure. So maybe there are buildings without air conditioning. Talk a little bit about what exactly this means for the people living in these communities.
1: Right, Um, it's a very rich question um, in part because um, what we're seeing in the climate uh, record very recently is exactly what many of the climate models have been suggesting for decades. We're seeing more frequent heat waves. We're seeing more intense heat waves and we're seeing longer duration heat waves. The heat wave you mentioned in the Pacific Northwest that claimed almost a thousand people, very conservative estimate, claimed almost a thousand lives in 2021 uh, happened at the tail end of June. So at the beginning of summer in the Northern hemisphere. And that was um, orders of magnitude greater than anything the Pacific Northwest had ever seen in recorded history. In fact, the climate, climatologist that I spoke to attributed to a one in 1,000-year uh, um, event that occurred, and as a result, we saw the, uh, the intense impact not only on human lives, we also saw it on ecosystems, shellfish, we saw trees uh, dying as a result, And we saw a lot of infrastructure buckling and actually failing as a result. We don't have the kinds of infrastructure built in our cities to be able to manage the kind of extreme climate related events that are uh, falling um, literally from the clouds or from the sun. What we're seeing is that the the amount of water that's falling from the the clouds, uh, often uh, called either atmospheric rivers or what we used to call pineapple expresses, these intense amounts of water that fall, like we're seeing in parts of South Asia right now, where the water that used to fall 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, is very different than the amount of water. And the pipe systems underground that can pull that water off the streets or even move it or infiltrate it, um, they yeah. don't exist anymore. We've either paved over a lot of those areas where the water can infiltrate or we've created a pipe system that are, are based on 50 or 100 Euro year ago uh, amounts of water that fall. And So what will happen is you get backup of those pipes, you have less infiltration of that water, and you see rapid flooding and very extensive flooding, which then has very long-term impacts on the infrastructure. Um, The way I tend to look at the relationship between flooding and heat is simply that flooding often doesn't claim as many lives. It creates really large impacts on infrastructure. So that's homes and basements and, you know, uh, um, and office spaces and hospitals and critical uh, infrastructure like that. It isolates communities, flooding often blocks roads and so communities can't sometimes get access to grocery stores mm-hmm. and, and basic services. So it's a pretty acute effect when we, when we're talking about flooding and its relationship to the infrastructure that we've inherited and locked in over the decades. And with heat, what we're seeing is kind of lives and public health being impacted. Infrastructure to a certain extent as well, Um, What we're seeing are a lot of buildings that have been put up in especially northern latitudes where no air conditioning has been installed or more, I think, insidiously, many of the windows, even on the upper floors of apartment buildings, aren't operable. So we have a community, we have a person, a resident living in a third, fourth or even higher floor apartment where we know as heat rises, those upper floor apartments get extremely hot to the point where if you have a pre-existing health condition, or if you're older, or in some way compromised in terms of your health, you will uh, very you'll have a very high likelihood of perishing during those heat waves if your windows aren't operable and the temperatures are going upwards of 120, 130 degrees Fahrenheit in your residence, um, and that is something that we're starting to see more often. And planners and uh, even architects haven't been at, at this stage designing the kinds of developments that we need to be more heat sensitive and more heat responsive and simultaneously more flood in, in, uh, responsive as well. So we're really looking at a pretty uh, mind boggling amount of infrastructure transformation that has to happen relatively quickly over a vast amount of space. And so uh, the the, The Herculean level of effort required on this is just uh, really humbling because we are at a stage where we're seeing these the intensity, frequency and duration of uh, climate related events accelerate. And at the same time, our infrastructure, the thing that protects us often from some of these acute impacts is not responding in the way that it was um, in the way that we'd like it to respond.
0: It seems then that this infrastructure or access to certain infrastructure, like air conditioning, will be one of the new lines that's being drawn, that we're seeing these sharp inequalities, you know, and particularly in those communities that have already suffered through generations of poverty. Getting back to that study that you co-authored that showed this multigenerational impact of poverty. Now, people living in these formerly redlined areas are in these heat zones. Those Communities don't have access to this infrastructure as well, so we're seeing even further inequality as a result of all of this.
1: Right, air conditioning is kind of our our um, real quick response to heat. We've done it in the in many parts of the south. Most buildings have air conditioning in them. Although schools, unfortunately, as schools are opening right now and over the next. Uh, Uh, period here. We're seeing a lot of schools. uh, Temperatures are still 100, 110 Fahrenheit, and many of the children are not uh, having air conditioning, that let alone um, residences where uh, communities, when they're um, trying to figure out even if they can afford an AC and even if a local policy, uh, such as the one recently passed in Oregon, um, where it's a right to cooling bill that requires landlords of rental properties to install, to allow for the installation of air conditioning. Even then the question becomes, how can that person who's trying to uh, manage multiple bills pay for a 200, 300, $400 electricity bill at the end of the month when they're running their air conditioning, which is a very energy hungry appliance. And so part of this challenge is how do we couple the cooling systems that we know Mm -hmm. work with not only sources um, of of, uh, cooling systems that are improved in efficiency and also with uh, energy assistance programs that can support communities that might not be able to run the AC and stay cool with renewable sources of energy that reduce the likelihood of greater amounts of greenhouse gases being emitted as more and more air conditioning units find their way into the northern latitudes. So we really have a multi-pronged solution that we need to be thinking of, while air conditioning is one, we need to couple that with energy assistance and with sources of energy that actually don't warm up the planet further.
0: And it seems we need to engage all parties the health department this is a public health issue not just physical health but mental health though there was a recent new york times article that showed a direct link between um poor mental health outcomes indeed even an increase in suicide and extreme heat as well as well as engaging planners the urban planners the architects the engineers And uh, the energy folk as well. So to that end, Vivek, you said it's a bit of a Herculean task, but what is being done? Is there anything being done that either viewers could get behind and pay attention to and urge folk to support, people in power to support? Or what, what do you see as even the first step in this giant task?
1: Sure. Yeah, I really tend to take enormous kind of what we call grand challenges like climate change and try to start thinking about it in short, medium, and longer-term approaches. And um, from a very short-term approach, these uh, acute and extreme events are increasing in frequency as we discussed, and the need to get uh, communities into safe spaces is really like the first step. This could, would require public health, emergency management, and um, any uh, social support organizations that are in and around in, in, in uh, a city, uh, a community, a rural environment. Like, how do we find uh, adequate cooling uh, resources? Meaning, if it's a cooling shelter, or if it's uh, recently a, a, re, a an uptick in resilience hubs, places where there's always heating or cooling available. There's food. You can stay overnight in these locations. It's safe. It's accessible. It's community oriented. Uh, communities, regardless of citizenship, etc., can can use this, use these spaces. It's really one of those. Uh, short-term solutions that we need to get folks um, out of harm's way. Like So there's a whole number of solutions there. There's a medium-term solution where we're really starting to talk about the ways in which we can start um, offering and creating a social infrastructure for communities to rely on. So that is whether you're as simple as getting to know your neighbors during an extreme event, whether it's uh, knowing where to go during an extreme event, like having those kinds of options available to you in the medium term and starting to build that what we call social capital in your neighborhood and getting to know each other. We know that that just by itself, by knowing and, and connecting with people around you, uh, reduces the likelihood of being impacted uh, by these extreme events. So that that's kind of a medium term piece that we could really think about. Um, And in the longer term piece, we really need to be talking about the fundamental shifts that need to be happening in our housing, in our uh, road infrastructure, in our electricity grid, um, and in the way that we can rely on the ecosystems like the trees and the green spaces and the wetlands to be able to safeguard us from some of these extreme events. We fundamentally need to be kind of um, aligning with the uh, way that the earth and natural systems are are shifting right now. And if we try to fight some of those shifts, we're going to be really up against a wall with trying to do that. So we need to create policies that really get at housing that addresses heat, housing that addresses flooding, and kind of predicting and planning for the 50 to 100 year time horizon with the longer term uh, uh, solutions.
0: And this seems to these conversations need to happen certainly at an international level as well I mean look at what's happening in Pakistan look at what's happening in all of these vulnerable island often uh, nations who are just dealing with the absolute devastation of the climate crisis but here locally people can engage I know on a very local level housing policy is often happening at a level that you can have your voice heard because you can show up to some of these planning meetings and you can actually really have an impact and I think that's really worth Emphasizing when people feel very overwhelmed by the climate crisis, that I think often people feel there's nothing I can do with it at an individual level, but you can advocate for very local policy that can really have an impact.
1: Yeah, I agree. I probably uh, serve on more volunteer commissions than I care to admit uh, publicly, but I, I am on a lot of them. And having one foot into that conversation about how resources are spent on, um, on a, I'm on a. Uh, um, a bond measure that's spending almost half a billion dollars on purchasing of green spaces and and kind of natural areas. And I'm trying to figure out how do we get this committee to think about uh, environments where historic disinvestment has occurred, because that has not been the kind of trajectory of such work. So each of our voices, each of our kind of place, our, our place locally can really drive change. And so I have my own agendas of what I'd like to see done in terms of further investments and engagements of communities that have been left out of these conversations. And I also would love to figure out a way to get communities who have been marginalized to participate in these conversations as well, because often what I'm uh, confronted with is no decision uh, about us uh, and without us. Right. And so that's a phrase that I've taken really to heart because it's about how do we engage communities who have, been facing some of the first and worst impacts from climate change to participate in those decision-making conversations? And how do we uh, support and empower those communities to act- actively engage? And what can we do in our own role to enable that to happen? Um, and so that's that's kind of where I would want to go at that local level of not only individuals, as a privileged person as I am with a you know a full-time job and able to run an air conditioner, I would love to also have communities who are experiencing these in their lives every day to be part of those conversations. And let's create systems that allow that to happen.
0: Vivek Shandis is Professor of Geography at Portland State University. He co-authored a study that showed a direct connection between extreme heat in urban areas and racist housing policies like redlining. You've been listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I've been your host, Maeve Conran. Watch past episodes of the show at freespeech.org and don't forget, subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.